0: Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast.
1: Back to a fork in time, the alternate history podcast. I'm Don Shelley, your host, along with my daughter Alexis. Hello. And we have two special guests today. We are really defying the odds, the most we've ever had. We're breaking I, barriers. We're breaking guys. barriers. Yeah, crossing new boundaries. Uh, but you will recognize, if you're familiar, uh, a listener to the podcast, you'll recognize both of these folks because they have both participated on past episodes. One of those is Brant Frost. Brant's actually been a guest host a couple of times with us. And the other is Chris Coppola. So, Brent and Chris, I'll let you uh, remind listeners what your voices sound like, and I'll sort of introduce us our, and our listeners into what our topic is today. Brent,
2: great to be here. Thank you very
0: much,
1: Chris. I really
0: appreciate the opportunity to come back.
1: Um, I'm glad to have both of you guys back. And uh, as I've mentioned several times before, I really we like the idea Alexis and I do of starting to have our our community participate, and folks that found us uh, by web searches and other ways as we've been now, it's, wow, it is now 10 months into the podcast. That's getting to be a scary thought (laughs) as we move forward on this. Uh, One of the topics that was almost an immediate thing in my head from the moment we first started doing this was the topic that we're gonna do today. And so just to let our listeners know, what we're gonna go back to is we're gonna go back to an important time in history and it's it's world history and it's military history, but it's also uh, contained within the 20th century. And so we're gonna go back to the summer of 1941 and what we're going to go back to is what would have happened if Germany had not launched an offensive that headed east. In other words, they had not launched what is known to history as Operation Barbarossa, which was the invasion of the Soviet Union. And so we're going to go down that, that historical what-if path today. That's going to be our fork in time. But before we get rolling with that, we're going to stop here really quick uh, to allow us to insert uh, just a quick break and a word from one of our affiliates who helps, uh, helps us with the podcast here. And then we'll be right back after that to jump right into the discussion about what if there had been no Operation Barbarossa. Here we are taking a quick break from today's show. This is Don along with... Alexis. And what we'd like to talk to you about today as I guess the founding members of A Fork in Time the <laughs> podcast. I'd like to talk to you about the actual platform that we host the podcast on. What's the name of that pro- platform, Lex? Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout, and I have to tell you that when we were starting a fork in time, I was an avid podcast listener, but I really knew very little about what was required to actually get a podcast up and going. And so I did a little research, and as a result of that research, landed on Buzzsprout. It's not surprising that I landed on Buzzsprout because there are over one hundred thousand podcasts that call Buzzsprout home, and so it's where we chose to host Buzzsprout. And I think it's safe to say we're very happy with that choice. Wouldn't you agree, Alexis? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I like about Buzzsprout is they made it very easy for someone who was new getting into what we were doing. They had great how-to articles, including some videos, some suggestions. And so basically they started answering questions that I didn't even know that I needed to ask as I was getting my podcast going. And so I would recommend if you've been thinking about a podcast, we don't think of you as a competitor. We just think you in terms of joining our community. Our recommendation would be that you give Buzzsprout a try. I think so too. Yeah. I, Uploading episodes is easy. The statistical backups that you get to understand what's going on with your podcast. Again, you'll find it's a very easy platform to use, uh, very interactive, very uh, very intuitive. And actually, if you follow the link in the show notes, uh, you get the benefit of being connected to Buzzsprout. And what you will get with a paid hosting plan uh, actually is a $20 Amazon gift card. What we will get uh, as a result of you letting them know that we sent you over uh, as one of as uh, to 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 check out Buzzsprout is we actually will get some benefit as well so I think there's a term for that what's that term Lex I think it's a win-win win-win so if you've been thinking about doing a podcast I would recommend that you check out Buzzsprout follow the link in the show notes uh with a paid with a paid plan hosting plan if you move forward there you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card as a result of following our link to go there and we'll get the uh, privilege of knowing that we help somebody join the community so that makes it a win-win we hope you do it today
0: Welcome back to uh, Fork in Time. And as we talked about earlier, we are actually going to be talking about Operation Barbarossa today, which I knew what this was, but I actually didn't know it had a code name. Uh, so I was like, oh, when I actually looked at it, I was like, okay, I actually know what we're talking about today. So Operation Barbarossa is the Soviet Union, uh, the invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany during World War II. Right.
1: And so when we go back in the magical way back machine here, we're actually going to be going back Uh, to the summer of 1941. So one of the things important things to sort of set the stage here is this is, uh, I'm sorry, I said 41, 1940, July of 1940. So we are actually several years removed from the involvement of the United States in the war. And uh, because that's not until late 1941. So the war at this point is primarily with respect to the European theater, the German theater is primarily on the continent. And so uh, the Germans have invaded and begun their operations in late 1939 against Germany and they, they've swept into France in the early part of 1940. And uh, one of the interesting things is there had been a, an agreement between uh, Germany and the Soviet Union a non-aggression pact that had been signed. And so when Germany chooses to engage in military action against the Soviet Union, that was a little bit of a surprise uh, perhaps to their to their soviet neighbors and so again we're looking at the what if here so Brent, i'm going to start with you when i first say that there's no german invasion of the soviet union in uh in july of 19 um i'm sorry i keep going back and forth it actually is 41 isn't it um
0: they started planning in 40.
1: yeah i'm sorry uh, it's only history why should i know anything about it so brent it's july it's june of 1941 it is june of 1941 uh, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you think about the fact that Germany's invaded the Soviet Union and how that might have been different if they hadn't?
2: Well, the, um, there's an excellent article, uh, I say article, it's an essay by John Keegan called How Hitler Could Have Won the War, at The Drive for the Middle East, 1941. And it's in the excellent book, uh, What If, edited by Robert Coley. And there's several contributors to it, including James McPherson and Stephen Ambrose. So it was a New York Times bestseller. And uh, one of the chapters covers this very subject. What if Hitler had not invaded the Soviet Union in 41? And what if instead they had driven into the Middle East? There are numerous ways that could have happened. Uh, One simple one would be, if the situation in the Balkans had been more difficult, if the uh, Yugoslavs and the Greeks had put up more stubborn resistance, if the British had been more successful in uh, delaying the German advance to the point where the uh, hitler decides that it's not practical to invade the soviet union in 1941 and instead decides to support rommel's uh, north africa corps and expand it and also lean on the turks to come in the side to come in on his side in the second world war and push through to the Caucasus, uh, but from the south and concentrate on the oil fields of iraq and between that and the rommel movement to the east cutting the suez canal capturing alexandria in Cairo, uh, that would have had enormous uh, consequences, uh, almost all of them negative from the Allies' point of view. Uh, so that I would say would be a very plausible uh, scenario and one where Germany is in a strong position, keeping in mind, of course, that the Soviets were planning an eventual invasion of uh, Germany, an attack on Germany, just as Germany was planning an attack on the Soviet Union. Both of them were trying to delay it until they felt strong enough to attack. Um, But inevitably, Hitler and Stalin would have come to blows at some point uh, down the road.
1: So under your your scenario that you just laid out there, Brent, the big difference would be the German position because of not being on a wide fronted war. I mean, it's hard to imagine to me the scope of the Eastern Front uh, to to some degree, just because of how much territory is involved and and the area that's there. But you're also suggesting that with German control of... Uh, the resources that would have been gained through a push through the Middle East that would have put Germany in a much different position before they launched that offensive, right?
2: Indeed. You, we cannot uh, underestimate, in my or rather overestimate, we cannot overestimate the, the uh, significance of Germany's strangu- uh, being str- uh, strangled slowly through the blockade and lack of re- access to resources. The Germans had to be extremely inventive in things like synthetic rubber, synthetic fuels, because they did not have access to the, to the real McCoy. Uh, but with access to the oil fields of the Middle East, that would have, and also the strategic position of cutting off the Suez Canal, that would have put Germany in a much stronger position uh, vis-a-vis those critical re- resources. Of course, they would have also had to garrison that region as well, which would have taken troops away from the inevitable war with the Soviet Union. On the other hand, they could have invaded the Caucasus and the Baku oil fields from the south, uh, a much shorter route. And of course, having the Turks on their side would have provided some more cannon fodder for the Eastern Front.
0: Right, but Chris. One you, thing I'd like to your mention. thoughts on that. Sure. I I think uh, first I don't so much agree with the idea of being able to reinforce Rommel simply because he had enough problems uh, supplying his own troops with the ports he had in North Africa. I do really think coming through Turkey does make a lot more sense now. The issue is coming through Turkey. Germany's now um, Germany's now occupying the Bosphorus Strait, which have always been this tr- of strategic importance to Russia. And if a you know they're they're okay if second-rate Turkey occupies it, but if a powerful foreign nation, typically Germany in this case, does occupy the straits, I think this may precipitate Russian action. Maybe not war, but it certainly steps up what they're doing. The other thing is um, in, I believe it was August of 41, there was a pro-German uprising in Iraq and the Germans were actually able to fly in some supplies to it from Vichy, Syria. So I I think it's actually possible that if they can reach uh, those groups and contact them, I'm not sure they're actually spending that much time in forces occupying those areas. They might have local, um, I'm gonna call it a puppet state that would be more than happy to welcome them in and just pump all the oil they like.
1: Okay, thoughts on that, Brent?
2: Well, that's an excellent point when it comes to Turkey. Um, This presupposes, of course, that the Turks, the, the Turks were working very hard to remain neutral until the last year of the war, uh, in 1944, they finally joined in on the Allied side when it was obvious Germany was going to lose. But if, if Turkey, if there was a coup in uh, Ankara similar to the coups that had gone on in Yugoslavia and Romania between pro and anti-Axis forces and sides back and forth, if there was a pro-Axis coup in Ankara, it is certainly possible that Germany and, and, and Turkey could have concluded an alliance. However, that may well have precipitated, as you say, a Soviet military response. The Soviets were, they were very good with proportionate responses. You know, they, like you say, would not necessarily brought in a general war, much like the 1939 confrontation with Japan in the Far East. The Soviets might've sent in a, several divisions an army or two, even a couple hundred thousand men into the Caucasus. But if they got a real hard punch in the nose, they might have done a few safe uh, face-saving measures, thrown, gotten a few good punches of their own in, and then uh, withdrawn, but if, the so- but if the Germans had succeeded in bringing uh, not just Syria under the Vichy sway, but also Iraq and Iran, which also had pro-axis elements, if they had succeeded in bringing those under their influence, I don't think the Soviet Union would have just sat by at that point. That probably would have precipitated, a Stalin probably would have offered a, uh, a military alliance with the, with the British. And the war in your, and uh, he probably would have launched a, an attack on the Germans um, at his, as soon as he could have, which is interesting because um, there's a book called Third Reich Victorious 10 Dynamic Scenarios in which Hitler wins the war. And one of them is called Zukov Strikes First. It's about a 30 page essay going through what if Marshal Zukov had persuaded Stalin, as he tried to do in real life, to invade Germany in 1941 before Hitler could invade them because there were all kinds of signs leading to that. I mean, you can't launch an offensive of, some, of over 2 million men uh, on a wide front that big without giving away signals. Right. And, uh, and, Stalin, and Stalin had resisted it. Stalin, who, you know, th- there's a lot of different schools of thought about Stalin. I tend to the school of thought that says he was an excellent survivor and probably the sharpest tack in the box in terms of the – when you look at his contemporaries, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Churchill, Roosevelt – he was probably the best when it came to playing off his enemies. But, there, but every guy has a, has a bad day. And he had a major blind spot when it came to Germany invading in 1941. He really, and I think it was just wish, he was wishing it and willing it not to be true because he knew how badly he was. He was ill prepared for a war in 1941. So he just said, Hitler's not going to invade. Hitler's not going to invade. He won't double cross me. Uh, which is so funny because Stalin built his whole career around double-crossing Around the
1: double-cross, right?
2: double cross, right? <laughs> double, murder and, lie, and lying to people, and yet he must have thought there's some honor among thieves, or at least uh, uh, I don't know. But uh, if, that, if that would have been a very interesting scenario. Germany's invaded the Middle East with Turkish help, and now they're down there, and they've succeeded, but now they have to turn around now and engage in a full-scale war on the plains of Poland along the Vistula, and uh spoiler alert, the scenario that was envisioned in that book ends with the Soviets being uh, thoroughly defeated and having to f- uh, fall back into Russia and Marshal Zhukov being sent to a camp in Siberia for failure to win, uh, win the war. So um, that would, uh, I-, I tend to think that if the Soviets had attacked in 41 or 42, as ill prepared as they were, they would have gotten pretty badly uh, beaten and been forced to negotiate a new border with the Germans. Uh, and that's another thing too. There's no, the Soviets did not have the encumbrances of the West of having to fight wars of ideology, and of having to be accountable to their electorate. The Soviets right. could surrender a province or two, and and then come back in 20 years and take it back. And they also, it, it was warfare was entirely amoral to the Soviet. It wasn't like, well, this is a war for democracy. This is a moral crusade that we have to fight to the very end, no matter what. It was all about what is expedient in the moment make a treaty now you know we're losing the war make an armistice make a treaty in five years we'll fight we'll strengthen ourselves and go back to take them on again right so they would have had no problem even giving half of ukraine to the germans hey you know take it and we'll come back in 10 years and take it away from you or yeah, we'll give an alliance and, 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 if you, you look at russian
1: russian history chris i'll, I'll let you jump you in you and, and respond or comment on that but if you look at i remember being a student in high school and my history teacher there talking about you know, the two famous Russian generals, General Snow and General Winter, obviously, you know, that, but, that Napoleon and many others dealt with, but also, you know, very willing to trade, as, as Brant just described there, uh, you know, to, trade land for, to trade land for time, if that's what it takes. Right, yeah. So Chris, um, did you have thoughts on what Brant just suggested there? Sure, there's, there's
0: two things that, that and, and I completely agree with his situation, uh, with his assessment. Uh, one, in this situation, We've got Germany controlling Middle Eastern oil, so just in terms of that, they are in a much stronger position than they were in our timeline. Because one, the you know the whole, if you look at how uh, Fall Blue in uh, spring summer '42, basically the operation that ended at Stalingrad, that was them trying to take the Baku oil fields because they needed them. And the whole Stalingrad diversion started off as just trying to cover the plank of that. Um, Now they've got their own oil. Now they don't need to chase Russian oil. And so that puts them in a stronger position. The other thing to think about is, if they do play out this scenario in which they've gone into the Middle East, um, they actually are in a position. The uh, August 41, too, I mentioned in Iraq, was led by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a Muslim spiritual leader. And I think it's a, it, it's an interesting possibility to think about the Nazis using that tie and that alliance to create some trouble, especially if they're in control of Iran slash Persia. Actually, right now is when they change their name um, to start some trouble for, the Soviet Union in their Central Asian Republic. I think that's something that, that's a distinct possibility.
1: Okay. Um, Brant, do you have any more thoughts on sort of the, the alter? I guess what we really explored there at some depth is an alternative German offensive. So there's no Barbarossa uh, in the way that we think of it, but there's a different offensive against different targets that I think both of you suggested that may have resulted in uh, the Soviets feeling no choice but to counter attack or counter assault because the threat that was there um so is is it your take Brent, that this was inevitable (laughs) somebody was going to start it and somebody was going to have to finish it
2: nothing is entirely inevitable um but it when you have two such enormous powers as that um with so with conflicting goals and conflicting aims uh it does seem that they're going to come to blows if if it's not it's not inevitable but it's highly probable and i do think that we would have seen that it's interesting as we thought this out, how history changes, but then it kind of pulls back into reality, Hitler and Hitler pushes into the middle East, but then he's he has to draw back to face the Soviets anyway. So, although it is, it is noteworthy. If you look at Russian military history, Um, Russia is a country which is, you know, the Russians are really good at using their, their winter and their snows and the hard Russian winter, to defeat their enemies, but they're also not very good at the offensive too. You know, Ru- Russia is a great, is a bad country to invade, but it's also a good country to defend against. Because if you look at Russian military, if you look at the Russian military records, say, in the 19th and 20th century, the Russians, the Russians did not do very well against Napoleon. They always had to have a lot of help. You know, he beat them at Austerlitz. He beat them more often than not uh, in, in the battles he fought with them they didn't do well in the crimean war they the only empire the only power well let's put it this way the ottoman empire was the sick the ottoman empire was the sick man of europe and the fact that in all in the 19th century the russians could never get to the Bosphorus and never could overcome the ottoman empire granted they had the protection of the british navy but the fact that they could never overthrow the ottoman empire in 100 years of trying and more shows you how the russians you know, the Russian military was not very well suited to conquest. And you say, well, wait a minute. They defeated the Germans in 1945. They absolutely did with the assistance of the West and outnumbering the the Germans toward the end, three, four, five, even 10 to one. So, yeah, t- 10 Russian peasants can overcome a, uh, you know, a German, uh, what's the term? Lanzer, a German Lanzer. Yeah, uh, 10 Russian peasants, uh, you know, scared to death by their commissar can overcome a, a German a Prussian Lanzer. No question about it. And they were very brave, and that's one of the reasons they were successful is the the Russians were extremely brave. But uh, had the Germans been fighting on anything like better odds in 42 and on the defensive, which, as you know, gives you a 3-1 to advantage to the defender, uh, I see the Russians getting a very bad pounding. At which point, you know, what happens then? Do they withdraw from the war for a couple of years, and now the U.S. is left to fight alongside Britain, and the Germans can transfer a million men to the West? To defend Europe indefinitely, uh, there you have a Cold War instead of a writ re- an East versus West Cold War. You've got a uh, Nazi versus West Cold War uh, that could last for many years n- yes. until the Russians finally decide
0: to get back in again.
1: Chris, do you have any uh, any thoughts on the inevitability of, of the conflict or anything that relates to that?
0: Yes, um, there's one point at which I see the conflict as somewhat avoidable in October of nineteen forty, and, and trust me, I know how counterintuitive what I'm about to say sounds. There were negotiations between Molotov, the Russian foreign minister, and the Germans for the Soviet Union to join the anti-comintern pact. That's right. To invite the Soviet Union to join the anti-comintern pact. Basically, this would have brought Russia. This was still during the period of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This is before they've gone into the Balkans. And these were negotiations to extend the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact and basically start carving up the British Empire, basically the world. And the Nazis thought the Soviets were asking for a little too much. The negotiations broke down. And basically, while Molotov is on his plane back to Moscow, Hitler issues the order to his general staff to start planning Operation Barbarossa. But if the negotiations would have been successful, and I I think um, what you were saying is right, is it would have been trading a couple of provinces. Uh, It would have been the Nazis telling the Soviets you can go ahead and take Iran or take something in the South. And um, at that point, I think that possibly could have forestalled a Nazi-Soviet armed conflict at least until they can set uh, – at least until the Nazis can I- – I'm sorry, Alexis, but settle up Britain's hash. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, well, that's a whole different story. That's a whole different uh uh, discussion right there. Would the Germans have ever been able to uh, to crack that British nut, particularly after 1941? If Japan has still bombed Pearl Harbor and brought the U.S. into the war, uh, personally, I don't. I don't see how they'd be able to. Um, now they could, it, with with more resources and natural materials, they could develop better. Uh, bom- you know, the the uh, the, v, the V1 rocket and the V2 rocket. They could pummel England safely from across the Channel. Um, But in terms of her being able to invade it, I don't see how that would have been possible because the amount of naval supremacy they would have had to attain would just have not not have been possible with the combination of the British fleet and the American Navy.
0: I agree with that. But what I would think is, in our scenario, if the um, Nazis can cut Suez, either through the Middle East or North Africa, if they can cut Suez, and cut India off, I think um, at a certain point, you're going to be facing the situation that Britain faced with Napoleon, which is, you can't hurt us, but we can't hurt you.
2: The Ellison um, and the whale.
0: Right, right. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree that you would not have been able to have German troops land and successfully take over Britain. I Do think, however, that Britain would have been left isolated if it loses India, because right now, not just Suez, but we've mentioned Japan before, coming in and taking that over, um, extending the Nazi Italian control in Africa, at a certain point, it is just the island of Britain, and if they're not in contact with the Germans at some point, somewhere, Um, I think at at a certain point, I mean, even in our timeline, uh, the fall of Tobruk triggered a vote of confidence in Winston Churchill. At what point? I think the fall of Suez would have triggered another one, and he may have fallen, and you would have seen, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say a Halifax, but but somebody else more accommodating government in Great Britain that, even though they're not invaded, is willing to cuss.
1: So, so one of the questions that I, pops to my mind that I would ask, you know, exploring these things there and thinking through now, how the, the war in the Eastern Front translates to what was happening on in the Western Front in Europe, does anything about no Operation Barbarossa alter, or again, we'll assume our, our alternate path here, which is a German invasion that is uh, more focused on the Middle East, does that change uh, how the U.S., interacts at that point in the war? Because again, they're still in more of the isolationist being a, uh, being a supplier uh, to Great Britain, but not actively engaged. We've talked about before, it's not until the, the attack on Pearl Harbor and then the subsequent declaration of war by Germany against the United States that really brings the, the United States into the war formally in Europe. Do you see the US sitting on the sidelines and just watching these developments in the Middle East? Or does that somehow trigger something different in how the Americans would look at things? Either of you. Go ahead, Chris. Um,
0: my first thought is, um, I, I think if there's no Barbarossa, there may not be a German declaration of war against the United States, which puts us in a really interesting scenario here. One of the, the, the only, and, and I stress the only reason that I have heard for Hitler's declaration of war against the United States was to try and encourage a Japanese declaration of war against the Soviet Union and basically open up a second front in Siberia. If you don't have a Barbarossa, my first question is th- – there's, there's, and, and listen, as, as crazy as a decision as it was, um, maybe he doesn't make that decision. The other thing I'm thinking about is if um, you have, let's call it the campaigning season of 1941 happened, the way we've talked about, which is a Nazi occupation of the Middle East. Now North Africa is not an important theater. So maybe that changes how the United States gets involved. If you don't have a, uh, El Alamein torch, the Allied, the American and British invasion of North Africa in November of 42 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So maybe it changes, even if Germany does declare war on the United States, maybe it changes the American focus. I mean, the United States wanted to invade France from the get go. They said, let's just get across the channel and go in. And the British tactfully suggested, let's try the Mediterranean, the uh, Churchill's idea of the soft underbelly, and the, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether that experience helped prepare the United States Army for what eventually happened in D-Day. Uh, I guess it's three, four years later now. Um, it also helped tie, you know, it drove Italy out of the war, tied uh, In, in Italy but uh, if you do not have a, um if you do not have the ability middle start starts building up immediately injury, which if you don't have that experience what does that even lead to okay.
1: and we lost a little bit of you Chris there because of some internet congestion perhaps Brett could hear you but uh uh, same, same, question to you, same question
0: to you, Brent. Yeah,
2: there was yeah, what was a bit of a breakup there. Um, yes, that would that would be very interesting because if Hitler had declared war uh, as he did in, in real life, um, then I think that would have precipitated the Soviet Union in 1942 deciding that was the time for them to strike. Now that the United States had joined the war against Hitler, this would be an excellent time for them to. Uh, Follow through on the threats they had made after the Germans and the Turks had formed an alliance And then so you you would have seen a general war break out in the spring of 1942 with the Soviets choosing The right moment to uh, launch a preemptive strike against the Germans in Poland And at the same time the United States is now preparing to join the war But of course you also have to factor in that, you know, this is not the world of man in the high castle, you know, it's realistic and so even if the British are defeated in Egypt, even if they're forced to retreat across the Suez, what the Germans don't really have that many places to go. In North Africa is virtually an archipelago uh, because there's an ocean of sand called the Sahara that isolates it from the rest of Africa. So the Germans don't have a Navy to speak of or the Italians, so where are they gonna go? They can't invade Ethiopia. They're, the only plausible route is to go down the Nile But that takes a long time, and where do you get when you get to the end of it? You got the mountains of Ethiopia to your uh, to the east. You got more desert to the west. You got the never-ending you know regions of dirt of sand and and uh, harsh terrain until you get finally to the uplands of Kenya and Uganda. But then again, once you've got there, you know once you've landed there, what have you got? No strategic uh, resources at all. You have to get all the way to South Africa before you find anything worthwhile. You know, worth conquering from the British point of view. And of course, there were a lot of people in South Africa who didn't even want to be in the war on the British side. So at that point, they might have withdrawn from the war or they might have just decided, as Afrikaners are like to do, there's a foreigner on my land. It doesn't matter who he is. I don't like him. So they might have fought doubly hard to just to keep the Germans out. Again, there's no real strategic value in Africa. There's no ports south of the Sahara that are significant enough that the Germans could get to. And again, they don't have a navy, so it doesn't use, it's not useful to them. So the North African, the North oh. African war kind of ends, kind of ends at that point, and then they shift to the Middle East, and again they have to get all the way across Persia, through Pakistan and into India, India. And if I may say this, if you remember when the British left India in 47, 48, they had less than five thousand bureaucrats and personnel and civil servants managing the country. And in fact, there was a st- survey done, a famous survey after the British left India, and they asked the Indian people. They went from village to village. The Indian government did and asked the people. Well, what effect did the british has the British occupation had on India? They were shocked to discover that the vast majority of Indians that in those in those villages didn 't even know the British had been there. So I say all that to say the British footprint in India was relatively small, which means that even if they were forced to withdraw from it as they eventually were forced to do, um, that is not necessarily a crippling thing. In fact, you now force the Germans or the Japanese to occupy and try to subdue hundreds of millions of resentful Muslims and Hindus who are fighting each other and fighting their occupiers. And each, and uh, they it's an open wound that they that's that they have to deal with. There's really only three places the British four the British cannot lose Canada, which they won't because it's next to America, Australia, New Zealand and the British Isles themselves, because those are extensions of the British homeland. They're, they're peopled people by Englishmen. And the difference between losing India and losing Australia to the Japanese in terms of the British psyche uh, is is no comparison between the two. But of course, if they had to pull out of North Africa, where do all those Austra- all the Aussies and uh, New and New Zealand troops go? Well, they go right back to Australia uh, to support to help MacArthur? So right. it's even less likely the Japanese can land in Australia. But um, you know, we all know the stories about the hand grenades they gave out to housewives and the pistols in Australia and he- and other places in case the Japanese invaded. It was definitely far, the idea of you know, millions of Japanese pouring into Australia scared the British and the Australians a lot more than the idea of losing India at that point.
1: Okay, Chris, any thoughts on that?
0: Um, I completely agree with your assessment of Africa. I, I was reminded of, of, I think it was Kissinger in a briefing on the Golden Civil War who said that Africa is a dagger pointed at the heart of Antarctica? Um, but um, I, I I do think the severing of Suez basically bifurcates the war. It makes it has Australia, New Zealand. I agree with you. Those troops, whatever troops make it out of there, by the way, I I don't know. You know, it, it does depend on on if they're able to make it out of the. Middle Eastern North African campaign. But I do think that you do have now basically Australia and New Zealand prosecuting the war against the Japanese and the British probably leaving them on their own to do it with American help. Okay. So and, and uh,
2: again oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and just real quick, and again it's all about the Navy at this point. If the British if the British can evacuate their troops from the uh, from Egypt Well, presumably it wouldn't be from Egypt. They would have been pushed across. they have been pushed to Suez. they have been pushed to the Nile. And then they would have just uh, been pushed back towards Suez. But again, at that point, um, they would have probably been able to hold Suez because Rommel Rommel could flank them in the desert, but he can't flank a canal. So they probably would have been able to hold there until such time as the other column coming down from Syria uh, down through Lebanon, the Levant had had, uh, been able to link up there. But of course, then you have all the the, um, the kibbutzes and the, uh, and the Jewish settlements in, uh, in Palestine at that point, they all would have been armed to the teeth and would have fought to the last man against the German onslaught, which meant that would have certainly, I don't see the British being trapped in some kind of Dunkirk situation. They would have probably been able to fight an orderly withdrawal, uh, draining resources, maybe down the coast of Arabia, uh, or maybe over to, probably not over to Iraq, since that would have been a rebellion. They might've just fought their way down the coast of, um, of Saudi Arabia until they could have been evacuated, maybe from the port of Aqaba or maybe further down the port, which brings another situation scenario. What does the house of Saud do in this scenario? Cause the Germans want to appease the Muslims. They don't want to, uh, to violate Mecca and Medina. Uh, but that definitely puts the house of Saud in an interesting position, having to switch sides again and become pro-axis. Um, but that, uh, but you, I would see, I can imagine a, a massive evacuation of the Jewish the Jewish uh, settlers living in what will become Israel uh, in the face of the German onslaught, in addition to all the uh, in addition to all the soldiers who would have to be transferred, who would be transferred either to, probably down to Yemen and uh, Somaliland, and then eventually a lot of them back to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but the navy, the naval aspect cannot be overlooked. He who rules the waves rules the world. And the fact that the British have the British channel separating them from Germany means that they can, and the Germans don't have a navy. <laughs> to speak of, they can, they can never they can't get at them. You know, the, the, we in many ways the world today is as it is because many thousands of years ago, uh, the geography uh, the, the England what was a, a valley between England and what is now England and Europe filled up with water. Yeah. The the security of the English Channel gave the British time to experiment with things like individual freedom, which a country like Prussia never could do because they were a constant military under constant military threat. Uh, G- geography, geography is key. is key, my friend.
1: Ge- geography makes a difference, and I'm struck by two things. Even tying back to the recent episode that Chris joined us on, as we were talking about, you know, Germany in the late 19th century, we keep coming back to that same thing again. You no know, navy, <laughs> and we kept talking about the importance of the British navy and, and the influence on there. And then to borrow your term from earlier, there, Brant, uh, it's one thing that you know the canals a, a very difficult thing to try to try to deal with in terms of strategic or, or tactical territory uh, that English Channel is one really big canal at the end of the day and so you know you, you can't flank there either I mean you ultimately you do have the situation of geography both for defense we even talked about this in the way that Russia and then later the Soviets defended you know they, they use their geography yep. effectively for defensive war it, it worked against them very often in off in offensive maneuvers and so you're right uh, any good student of history would all of us would be better students of history if we were better students of geography. I remember somebody telling me that once. I think that's a true statement. We forget uh, the impact of geography on the macro trends in history, but then also on the tactical moments in history as well.
2: There's a great book about geography written, uh, written not too long ago uh, called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. I highly recommend it. The first chapter is about Russia. And it's, and the fellow says, Vladimir Putin may go to sleep at night in the Kremlin and pray, God, why didn't you put some mountains in Ukraine?
1: <laughs> yep, yep. It's, um, there's like I say, I, 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 I'll I recommend that book to readers. I haven't read it, but I, I've read things about that book. And uh, again, I was thinking through again, just every, every war game, tabletop game I've ever played, whatever it is, you know, we often just sort of think of terrain as not being important. It's a supplement to the rules but one of the first things you will see that any military historian will study when he wants to understand the battle is he wants to understand the terrain. Who had, who had the high ground? Who had the ability to maneuver? You know, what was, what was the situation? That's in a tactical sense, even more importantly, in a strategic sense. Well, I know that Brant's gonna have to uh, leave us here shortly. We have a limited time today. So Brant, is there anything you wanna say before we sort of close out your participation here in, in this episode?
2: Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. And- Look forward to it in the future. It's, it's a wonderful podcast, and I'm privileged to be a part of it.
1: We're privileged to have you, Brent. Appreciate you joining us. And we're recording this obviously in the midst of the uh, of the pandemic response that's going on globally. So we were talking about off podcast before we uh, before we started here. This is all of us are getting a little bit of cabin fever. So being able to record an episode has been a nice diversion here for a bit. And we look forward to having you back again, Brent.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks,
1: Brent. Chris, any uh, any closing thoughts from your end on sort of this this interesting little what if of uh, if if Germany had not been as ambitious in in, uh, in 1941 or ambitious um, in a different way? Not particularly.
0: I, I think we've kind of explored it.
1: I agree. And, uh, you know, it's one of those interesting things, too, because in talking about it, we we went down an alternate path, which is exactly what we do on a forking time. Yeah, that's the point. That's always the point, which is to go down a particular path, which was the, uh, the invasion. And it's interesting that we didn't really go down the path of what would have happened if just sanity had prevailed and there'd been no need for Germany to take action. I guess in my mind, it's Inevitably, as I think Brant said this, or perhaps you said it as well, when you're talking about the egos that existed there and the situations that existed there, it was unlikely that everybody was just going to stay inside their lines forever, right?
0: Well, I I think um, George Keenan had it right when he, in his long telegram, said, almost as if the Soviet Union is a fire. Both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union were a fire and they were constantly consuming. And they constantly, they needed the enemy. They were totalitarian states that needed an enemy. Right. And if they don't have the enemy, the fire gets knocked out. Mm-hmm.
1: I think, I think that's, that's an excellent point is that sometimes it's, uh, we talked about the importance of geography. That's almost the importance of a, of a national psychology, right? Right. Or the, or the psychology of leadership. Well, Chris, once again, I've enjoyed having you back, and uh, I thought it would be good to get you and Brent on the same episode because I know that you guys both share a passion for this and would be able to bounce off each other, and I think you guys did that very, very well, and so I appreciate you uh, pulling together here. We look forward to having you back on the podcast uh, at some point in the near future as well.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And so once again, we appreciate uh, you listeners joining us today on A Fork in Time. As we mentioned, uh, sort of just in passing there, and we didn't really cover it at the start of the podcast. We're recording this during the, uh, the early days of what I hope is a very short-lived global crisis oh, now. Me too. We, uh, we know that um, we have listeners all around the world, and I was actually thinking about that today as I'm in the United States, and thankfully I'm healthy, and Alexis is here and is healthy as well. She, she's at home with her mom and I this weekend. Not it,
0: because I want to be. Not because coach. she wants
1: to be. She's been. Her, her job has been impacted by this, yes, as I know many have. And so we just want to say that we know that for a lot of our listeners out there, this is a, a scary time, a dangerous time, an impactful time. Um, uh, we happen to be believers, so we're praying that things go well. But we know that there are those uh, who are healthy, but th- they're experiencing fear. And we know that globally we're facing facing crisis now. And so we just want to hope that at least we've been during this just a couple of minutes a uh, chance to think about something else and to think about things that have nothing to do with the present. But at the whole time we've been talking about this, I'm keenly reminded of what the present is. So uh, our thoughts and our prayers go out to each one of you. And uh, keep in touch with us. Let us know what's going on. I, I actually, candidly, we talk so often about going to the website and the ways that you support us. Just just let us know how you're doing out there if yeah. you're a listener. Uh, just, just leave us a note, drop us an email. we just like to know that the folks, because we can see the map where our listeners are around the world, which is one of the cool things that Alexis and I have talked about, but just let us know how you're doing, and uh, that'll that'll make us feel a little bit better. Cabin
0: fever. What are you doing?
1: Yeah, exactly. Other
0: than listening to the podcast, yeah. what else are you doing?
1: So, so, we would just encourage you to do that, and just let us know that you're okay. That'll that that's something that we can be thankful for. And if you're not, let us know, and we we can certainly pray and lift pray for you and lift up positive thoughts. So, uh, we're going to close out close out the podcast now. Again, uh, Alexis and I appreciate you joining us here today. Appreciate our guests, Chris and Brant. And until next time on A Fork in Time, uh, be safe and be healthy, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for listening
0: to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more about the podcast at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Join us next time.